Good morning, everybody. It's so good to be here with you. Thank you to everybody that put that on, and thank you to the men of rock for making it entertaining. And um, I, it's, it's always a, a privilege to be here with my New Hope family in Toowoomba. Um, it's a yearly thing. We just sort of do it now, and, um, and, and we come by and journey uh, together. And so I, I, get to open, I get to open the Bible today, and, um, and I take that very seriously. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a transforming thing. The idea isn't to be right about it. The idea is to find ourselves in the story and ask ourselves, how are we looking at the world in a way that brings life, or how are we looking at the world in a way that brings death? And, and in, 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 that, in that vein, I want to talk to you this morning uh, about sex. And, and how it mirrors the way we see the world. Now, just to, to be clear for those of you who don't know me, uh, this sounds like I'm making a joke, but this is absolutely true. My master's degree in clinical psychology is in sex. So I have a master's degree in sex. That means I'm a theoretical expert, right? Right? <laughs> like, in theory, no one's better at sex than me, right? right, right, right. In theory. Now, in practice, pretty much crap. But in theory... In theory, I'm the best. And so, um, and so I want to talk to you about how, um, how sexuality actually is just mirroring part of how we're seeing the world and how it can challenge us to see the world better, right? And, and so if you're thinking, if you're thinking, oh, God, Shane, seriously, that don't, don't, don't do one of those things. You're not going to make us feel bad. And we're going to leave all guilty and shameful and all of this stuff. Now, I've been coming nine years, and if you're new, I want you to find someone who's, who's been here for a while and knows me and just, just ask them, you know, th- and, and they'll tell you that's not his style. That's not his style. Shane, Shane does not do that. Why? Because, because permanent life change never is achieved through judgment, through shaming, or through guilt, or through fear. Judgment, shaming, guilt, and fear are excellent short-term motivators, but they are terrible long-term view makers, all right? And so, and so in that sense, I, I want to talk to you a bit about lust and about how lust really isn't about what you think, right? So three initial thoughts on lust before we get to the slides. One, lust always promises something it can't deliver. Lust always promises whatever we think we're achieving with it, it never delivers what we thought it would. That's one. Two, lust is a manifestation of a belief that something or someone outside of me can cure me of my feeling of lack. It, it, it manifests itself as sexuality, but in a lot of other ways. But the idea is, is are we seeing our world in such a way that I believe there's something that currently exists outside of me that'll make this empty feeling go away? I, I think that would do it. And then we do everything we could do to get that. And then we get that and that doesn't do it either. And, and lust is a manifestation more of a way of seeing the world than it is something we should be ashamed of in one area, right? N- number three, lust is meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Now, now let me try it. Now, here, here's the thing with lust, right? We tend to have a couple basic responses to lust and neither of them are helpful. One is just to avoid talking about it because it affects everybody and we don't want to make people feel bad. And so let's just get that out of the way. Nobody is going to feel bad when we leave here today. So everybody take a deep breath and relax. This is not about feeling bad. This is about a different way of seeing the world, okay? That, so that, that's number one. The other way is to over-respond the other way and to over-engage it with lots of judgment and guilt and avoidance, and that is ineffective at best as well. 
So, so the reason we do those two things is I think is because we lack language to speak of it. But if you're here today and you're a dad and your son is turning 14, you want to have some language to talk about this stuff. You don't, you, you want to be the source of how we think about our sexuality with your children, right? And the last thing we want to do is avoid it, forbid it, because all that does is make it huge again. So this is my effort to put some language around it in order to help us with how we're dealing with our children, how we're dealing with our neighbors, how we're thinking about life, how we're thinking about non-sexual things like money and power and things like this. And so let me, this is my best effort at trying to put some language around this. So if you could bring that first slide up for me, Michael. So a vice is a habit that inclines a person to sin. That was Thomas Aquinas. Now, now the, 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 the Jews had another word for this. Next slide. It's called the Yetzer Hurrah. The Yetzer Hurrah was the, literally translates the evil eye, but it was a metaphor for our inclinations toward greed, our inclinations toward selfishness, our inclination to believe that our life is found in our accumulation of objects, things that currently exist outside of us that if we just got them, we would feel better. Now, the initial thoughts on lust. Next slide. So the goal of Christianity is not overcoming sin. And so if, if you grew up um, coming to church and, and it sounded like the goal of Christianity was to make people sin free, not the goal. Not the goal. And that's not the case here. But maybe you just started coming here or maybe today's your first day. And you're like, and I, I just want to overcome that right at the beginning. It is not the goal of Christianity, nor New Hope Church, nor Shane Willard to, over, to help you overcome sin. That's not the issue. And it's ineffective. It's about transforming the heart and the way we see our world in such a way that brings life, not death. Christianity is not about appeasing God. God is already appeased. He's been appeased since before the foundation of the world because of the finished work of Christ. Not about that. It's about transforming the heart to join us with seeing the world in a way that brings life instead of death. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. So Christ does not say, get rid of your sin and come to me. He says, bring your sin, your failure, your shame, your vices, bring all of that into the story because it all belongs. It all belongs in your story. Let, let's say it this way. Christ does not say get the planks out of everyone else's eye. He says get the plank out of your own eye and then help others with the specks in their eye. In, in other words, Christ assumes that the way we see the world, that we can bring correction to one another as long as we see ourselves as the bigger sinner. The idea is not get sin free. The idea is bring all of the darkness into the open, all of the death into the open so that light and life can overtake it. See, being authentic is more important than getting it right. This is, uh, this is the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 5, 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Which leads to this, which leads to this question, like, really? Why go there, Jesus? What, what, what you just did, what Jesus Christ just did, it seems like, is he just lumped all of us into the same category. And I think that was his point. I think that was his point. He's dealing with religious people who thought they were better than everybody else because they hadn't actually committed adultery or they hadn't actually murdered anybody. And Jesus is like, murder is not the, murder, if, if murder's the lighter issue, the, the, the bigger issue is hatred. 
Why is murder lighter than hatred? Because less people kill people than people who hate people, right? Right, right, right? Like very few people actually follow through and murder somebody, but hatred's actually the problem. And then if you look underneath hatred, it's the idea that you could call someone a fool and be okay. So Jesus always dealt with the heart issue underneath the issue, underneath the issue. It's really easy to deflect to, well, I've just never committed adultery. Yeah, but, yeah, but let's, that, that, that would, that's going to set up a whole system of us and them and in and out and I'm better and you're worse. That, and that would be terrible if we saw the world that way. Let's just put everybody in the same discussion and say, we all struggle with looking at the world at times in a way that brings death. And we all have moments where we look at the world sometimes in a way that brings life. And I'm going to encourage you to look at it in a way that that brings life and not death. Life and not death. So, so let's, let's look at some of these ideas. One, sexuality has the potential for beauty, obviously. There's some things in sexuality that aren't about the physical act of sex, but they actually, actually bring beauty to our world. Commitment is very sexual in nature. A- actually, actually, some of the most sexuality things we can see is, is practiced by people who've been together 50 or 60 years and physically they cannot perform the act of sex anymore, but they're so connected and so committed. There's something connected about them. And that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, there's loyalty. There, sexuality ha- has the potential to bring out selflessness in us, oneness, sharing, but, but it also has the potential for darkness. Things like promiscuity, which requires us to objectify a person. Promiscuity is just the manifestation of a belief that something or someone outside of me will make me feel better. And, 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 and there, there's, we're going to get into that in just a second. There's, there's a reason that that is destructive. Violence, objectification, idolatry, cruelty, addiction, and destruction. See, see, let's say it this way. Sexuality deeply parallels the spiritual. That's an old rabbinical teaching that actually the way we think about our sexuality, what, what, why it's so important. Is it really a big deal how two adults think about coming together physically in a, in a pleasurable way? Not really. But the sexuality, the sexuality, the way we think about that deeply parallels how we're seeing our world. And that matters big time because you can't separate your body from your spiritual side. You can't, they go so far to say, you can't, you, how do you think you can separate our eating habits from how you think about spirituality? You can't. You can't separate what you eat from it. If you're eating destructive things, what you put into your system will put poison in it. You can't put poisonous thoughts in your mind without having a poisonous outlook on life. There's, you can't separate these things. We live in a holistic system and that holistic system is affected by everything. So let me give you some, uh, just a quick four-minute history lesson on how we got to where we got in terms of how we speak of these things, all right? So first, lust was defined early on as the pursuit and obsession with sexual desire and pleasure. I think we have a better definition for it now. We'll get to that in a second. Most teaching in the New Testament come on sexuality comes from celibate males, which is a whole nother thing to think about. The New Testament writers thought the end of the age was imminent, and that's very important. Paul lived with an assumption and a conviction that turns out wasn't true. And that assumption and conviction was, was that Jesus was coming back in his lifetime. And so a lot of the letters he wrote, which by the way, he never thought we'd still be reading. He was just hoping the letter would be delivered and the mail carrier wouldn't be eaten by a mountain lion, 
right? It's not like they had Australia Post and FedEx and UPS and DHL and, and, and Fastway. It's not like they had tracking numbers. You, you wrote it by hand. You handed it to a delivery person. You hope they made it on the road without being robbed, without being attacked by an animal, right? He's just hoping we know for a fact that two of his letters to Corinth got lost somewhere. Now, I didn't lose them. Don't get mad at me, but they just got lost somewhere, right? Right? And so, and so Paul is writing letters based on his assumption of how the world works. And, 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 and here's, here's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7. And by the way, if you read the whole thing, this passage is one of the few passages where he says, this is my idea, not God's, okay? This is my idea, not necessarily God's. And here's what he says. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, to Paul, in his conviction about how the world was coming to an end, he, he says it's just best not to marry unless you're out of control. So to Paul, the only reason to get married is if you're out of control. So sometimes when people have a go at me, oh, you're unmarried, I say, well, you're married, that means you're out of control? I'm going, what, like, what are you talking about, right? This is... This, so what, what happened was, is Paul writes a letter with a certain conviction underneath it, a certain assumption, and that assumption turned out not to be the case. And that, and because here, here was the problem that created, right? We're commanded in scripture to be fruitful and multiply, right? And the only way to do that in a healthy way is to do so in a married situation, right? And so if everybody did what Paul was saying here, the world would have ended, right? But Paul's living with an assumption that the world's going to end very quickly anyway. And so he's, he created a situation where people had to wrestle with this. So out of this passage came a movement called desert monasticism, okay? And what happened was, is a monastic movement, they, they said you could be pure through separation. Here's the problem. We now have access to those people's writings, and they reported being tormented by lust, even though they were separate. They taught that you can combat this by making the body suffer. So they would do things like beat themselves so that they weren't thinking about other things. It's like that scene from the old comedy movie, Major Pain. Remember where he says, Major Pain, my leg's hurting. And Major Pain says, you want me to show you trick, take your mind off that pain, right? And he broke his pinky. So he wasn't thinking about his leg anymore, right? It, it was It was that sort of idea. Now, now, a guy named Augustine came out of this and here's what he said. He said, all sexual desire is a part of the fall. Now that's a big statement. All sexual desire is a part of the fall. And he concluded that the purpose of sexual activity was for procreation only, right? Now this, was, this would have been a horrible time to be alive just anyway, but then you add that idea to it, it would have just been terrible. Here's what Augustine said. Now remember, the church is responding to horrendous debauchery in the Roman Empire. Here's what he says. He says, when the goal is not procreation, Husbands become vile lovers, wives whores, and marriage beds brothels. Now, this, this would have been a terrible time to be alive. There was this huge reaction. There was massive debauchery in the Roman Empire, and the church is going so far the other way that, that it just became a very unhealthy thing in both senses. Here was Augustine's hierarchy. First was you could be a virgin or someone who's decided to be celibate at some point. Then the second one, it was a sexless marriage. And the third hierarchy was a marriage with only procreating sex. He said, he said, procreating sex should be much like shaking hands, just a transaction, like here, here, you know, here we go, right? Now, a sexless marriage, that would just be 
Terrible, because honestly, sex is the Novocaine that makes marriage bearable anyway, right? Right? Like, it's like, well, you know, if you remove the Novocaine, they're going to irritate you terribly, right? Right. By, by the way, this is why, this is why for you young people, it's very important that you don't introduce sexuality too early in the in your relationship because sex becomes sex releases an enzyme in your brain that literally numbs you to their obvious character flaws <laughs> right so what happens is is you just get numbed to you get blinded you get, you get blinded by the sexuality, by what we'll call it Novocaine. No, Novocaine is a numbing agent. And so, so what, what will happen is, 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 is you, you introduce sexuality too early. And what happens is, is you get blinded to their character flaws. And here's what happens. This is why the biggest clump of divorces is at seven years. It takes five years for the Novocaine to wear off. At about the five-year mark in a marriage, you can't out-sex what irritates you. Can't do it. Can't do it. Doesn't matter anymore. They just irritate you. And then they come to my office because I was a counselor for years. And they're like, hey, he's not the man I married. No, yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. He's a slob. He's overweight. He's lazy. He doesn't help around the house. He's, yeah, no, no. He's the guy you married. But when you first got together, there was lots of Novocaine. So you're like, oh, whatever. Right? Right? Or they say, she's not the woman I married. No, yes, she is. Yep, she's critical, cantankerous, jealous, possessive, and quite frankly, horrible. She can't, she, she can't cook. That's true. But, but, when you first, but, but when you first got together, there was lots of Novocaine, so you're like, what the heck, we'll eat out. Whatever, right? Right? Right. And so, and so what happens is, is, is Novocaine blinds you to the character flaws. Listen, when Jesus was alive, the average age of death was 32. So till death do us part was more doable. Okay. Right. Right. It's like, oh, put up with their crap another 12 years. Everybody will die. It'll be okay. Now we have to live with them to 84. Listen, you don't want to make an 84 year decision with Novocaine and drugs on your head. Right. Right. There's a lot of things you, you just don't want to do that. So there's all these unhealthy ways to think about. Now here's the modern concept. So this is how, this is how that then morphed into how maybe we've heard sexuality talked about. So, so the first one is don't think about it. Just don't, hey, just avoid it entirely. Well, that's not helpful. If I tell you, don't think of a pink, purple, polka dotted elephant, just don't, don't think of that pink, purple, polka dotted elephant. By the nature of telling you not to think about it, we enliven this massive obsession with it. Forbiddance is actually the most powerful force to get someone to do something. If, if you, if you want someone not to do something, just don't forbid it and talk about it openly. If, if, if you want, if, if you want your children to think about sex in a healthy way and, 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 and not be sneaking off doing whatever, just talk about it all the time. Because the last thing a 15 year old wants to do is think about their parents having sex, right? It sort of puts them off the mood, right? It's, it's, it's the way to do it. So, so first we go, we go, oh, 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 just don't think about it. Then, and the second way is, is if you tarnish your purity, you can never ever get it back, right? Which that's not helpful, 
right? That's not helpful at all. And I've seen well-intentioned youth pastors use that illustration. Your life is like a diamond, you know? Your sexuality is like a diamond. And if you get one flaw in that diamond, you can never, ever get it back. Not helpful. Not helpful because you're talking to a room of a lot of people who've tarnished their diamond, right? <laughs> right? Not, not, not helpful at all. Not helpful at all. Because that, 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 that then makes us um, despair. It's just not a helpful way. I was, I was doing a young adult's Q&A one time. And um, a, a young lady, I, I can't believe how brave she was, actually. She, she stood up in front of everybody. There was two microphones. There was a lot of people. And she said, Shane, thank you for being here. She was probably 26. She said, um, my youth pastor told me that the greatest gift I could give my future husband is my virginity. And I said, okay. She said, what if that's not possible? Is there still hope for me? And I thought to myself, how's that? First of all, that is horrendous, lazy preaching. That, that's first. Second, that put her in a horrible spot for years. Third, I can think of a hundred things I would rather my future wife be than a virgin. I'm 44. If I was waiting on a virgin, that would make me a pervert. That's first. Secondly, there's lots of things I, I could picture. Like, honestly, right? You imagine that? Hey, hey. I don't bathe, but I'm a virgin. Here's your prize, right? Right? I, I'm irresponsible, but I'm a virgin. Here's your prize. I'm volatile, angry, and, and, and combative, but I'm a virgin. Here's your prize. There's a lot of things I would rather my future wife be than a virgin, right? Like, like supportive, loving, caring, honoring, respectful, right? Not volatile. See, the, so the way we've thought about this has escalated one issue above a whole lot of other ones. Um, the third lie was this. Once you marry, it'll be pure bliss from then on, right? <laughs> Which, uh, not true, right? Because here's what we've done. Hey, hey, avoid it at all costs. Don't think about it at all, right? If you tarnish your diamond, you, you'll be impure, right? But, but, but then you're going to get married and two people who've avoided the topic their whole life. This is going to be great. No, it absolutely uh, will not. Now, a couple things about this, about a better way to think about it. Number one, that you were created for love. It's hardwired into your body. So your sexuality is a good thing. Any gift God gave us, it can be made for good. The Greek concept is the word eros. Eros included sexual desire, but it also, that word included community. It included friendship. It included sacrifice. See, the Latin word for sex means to cut off or to be separated or divided. So let's think about it this way. Next slide. Sexuality is about overcoming our separateness. It's about longing for connection due to separation. It's about living in a situation that we're, we're fully known and fully accepted at the same time. The Bible says it this way, naked and unashamed. Let me put today's language on it. Fully known and fully accepted. You know everything there's to know about me, and I'm still fully accepted. So sometimes the way we think about our world is we feel a profound sense of disconnection and we're trying to meet that need any way we can. And sexuality is about that, which leads to this. Next slide. So lust can be blinding. When we try to meet that need for connection over separation, the, the, the links we go to to do that can be very blinding. We can compromise things we would never compromise on. We can rationalize things we would never do normally. And it's because our profound sense of disconnection can overcome good 
sense. It can overcome good sense. See, the desire underneath the thing is connection. That This is why cheap sex doesn't work. It, it just magnifies the disconnection. You, you could have sex every night with a different person, every night with a different person, and still feel more disconnected than ever before. You, 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 could, you could be married and be sexually active and yet feel alone. And that would be, that's the worst. The idea is, is that, is, is that the physical act of sex is not the answer to the connection problem. It's just a symptom of how we look at, it's a symptom of how we're looking at, at our world. See, sometimes the most alive and connected people are actually, so let's say, let's say it this way. Next slide. What if lust is a manifestation of a belief that external objects are capable of helping me overcome the inevitable feeling of lack? That's the problem. The problem isn't the sexuality. The problem is, is that it evinces a way of seeing the world. And if we see our world this way, it creates prison. If I'm always looking for the next thing to make me feel better, whether that next, whether that next thing is a person, a, a, a woman, right? Or whether that next thing is a thing, like more money, another car. If I just had that car, I would feel better. If I just had that job, I, I would feel better. If I just had what they had, I would feel better. Th this is why when we speak of things this way, we always use impersonal pronouns. Like, like if, if, if we're speaking, if we're objectifying a person, we don't use their name. We go, wow, she is smoking. Who's she? What's her name? Or, oh, I want what they have. Who's they? See, what we do is we depersonalize that person. When we're, when we're looking at them with jealousy and envy and we want their position, their money, their job, their house, their car, we always use impersonal pronouns when we speak of things that way. Always. It's always, it's always, boy, I'd love his job. Who's he? Man, I'd love their house. Who's they? See, what we do is we further the disconnection by refusing to use their name when we're speaking of them as objects outside of ourselves, where we believe that what they have will make us feel better. And that brings death to the world, not life. And that's the problem. The problem is, is not sex. The problem is inhumanity to other human beings. Because God is not someone we love. God is someone we find in the act of love itself. When we, when we honor the image of God in the other person, whether that has to do with money or prestige or position or stuff or sex, whatever the case may be, when we lust after the things that they have, we have to shift our language to speak of them in the impersonal pronoun. Because in speaking of them in the impersonal pronoun, we dehumanize them. And anytime we dehumanize a person, we're bringing death to the world and not life. And that's the problem. That's the problem. So let's say it this way, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's God's will that you should, you should be sanctified. You should avoid sexual immorality that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in the passionate lust like the pagans. I won't get into this right now, but in Thessalonica, there were several gods who received worship through outdoor orgies. And what they would do is the class two or three, it was a nine leveled class system in the Roman empire. And the class one, two, and three people would force the class seven, eight, nine people to be, to be the objects of their sexual passions in public as an act of worship to a God. It would have been the worst time to ever be alive. It would have been horrendous. If you've ever thought, boy, this world's crazy these days. No, no, that would be illegal now, right? Back then it was celebrated by the whole Roman empire. Now watch, watch what Paul says. 
like the passionate lust of the pagans who do not know God. Now, in this context, why don't they know God? Because of how they're treating other people. They're, they're dehumanizing them. Watch what he says. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. In this, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Here's perhaps one better way to think about this. Next slide. Paul seems to indicate that the way to handle lust is to think about the other person. It's not avoidance. Actually, the best way to handle lust, whether it be about things or about sexuality or about what they have or about position, the best way to do it is to force ourselves to use the personal names, not the impersonal pronoun, to actually think about the humanity in it. That that is a human being made in the image of God. And if I dishonor that and objectify them in any way, I'm bringing death, not life to the world. This is not about sin. This is not, this is not about, oh, if you do that, God's gonna be mad. God's not mad. God was appeased before the foundation of the world and he loves you just as you are. And he says, bring all that stuff to me, not avoid it. But the way it's, it's not about appeasing God. It's about a way of thinking about the world that brings life and not death. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, hey, if you wanna deal with this, what you do is you don't avoid it. You actually engage it with the humanity. See, Paul's advocating humanity. Essentially be a humanitarian by never objectifying them. This is why, in marriages, for instance, should and ought to statements never work. They might work in the short term, but they create a problem in the long term. So, 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 so if husbands, I'm talking to a room of men right now, so I'll, I'll deal with that part. So if husbands tell their wives, a good wife would do this. Well, that, that's just, like, that, that's, that's saying if, that, that's taking all choice away from them. That means if they don't do it, you think they're a bad wife. That's, that's getting what you need from them by judging them, right? It's dehumanizing them. It's removing all choice. It's control, which is the opposite of love. Let's say it this way. Next slide. When we can't see the human on the other side, we're locked into lust, regardless of the topic. If you can't see the human on the other side, that the girl on the computer screen, she has a name. She has a name. We're not interested in that name because it's an object. It, the, 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 the person at work that you wish you had their position, they have a name. They have a name. The one walking down the street that you want what they have, that person has a name. And, and see, scripture uh, sums it up this way. They, they, they say that it's either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. So some philosophers have said girls, gold, and glory. Lust of the flesh, girls. Lust of the eyes, gold. Pride of life, glory. That, that the way we see our world should avoid those things. And how do you avoid those things? It's not by avoidance. It's by engaging the humanity on the other side of it. Can you imagine a world where we were able to name the person. You wouldn't have to fight the pornography problem. You wouldn't, if you can name the person. You, you, can't, you can't engage in that activity with a named person. Can't, can't. You, you, could you imagine the jealousy and envy issues at the office that would be solved? Can you imagine the political um, climate? Could you imagine if we quit seeing the person as an object? Oh, their labor. No, 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 that's a person. Oh, they're liberal. Wait a minute, hold on. That's a, that's a person. Oh, 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 they're Muslim. What? No, 
That's a person. That is a human being on the other side of that check. Could you imagine a world where we overcame this by simply engaging the humanity in the other person? We would bring life and not death. So good, good teaching's meant to be, not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. It's meant to be wrestled with. So let me give you a few things to wrestle with. Hopefully, when, when you look at the Bible, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And the other question is, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? So, so, so let's, let's deal with that second one. Uh, first question, can you name the human being? Can you name the human being? You might say, man, I struggle with this so bad. I just can't seem to beat it. I feel bad. I feel disconnected. I feel, I feel like I've brought disrepair to my life. Okay, step one, can you name them? Name them. Humanize them, not objectify them. Two, can you name what is important to them and why they're precious to God? Three, can you imagine that person sitting in God's presence? That's a child of God. They're everything in every way. Paul said that the spirit of the risen Christ is, is filling everything in every way. That God is not an external projection. Rather, God is an internal projectile that cuts through all things. Yeah. Right? Can you, can you name that? Can you name that? Number, number four, have you confessed the issue out loud to one safe person? Not on the internet. <clears throat> number five, where are you connecting to humanity by making someone else's life better? Where are we humanizing the other by making their life better? See, see, people who bring life, not death to the world are people who look around and when they see needs and they know they can meet the need, they humanize that person. Not by asking what can they do in return, but by meeting that need with no expectation of return. When we make a habit of seeing our world through the humanity and the image of God cutting through and holding all things together, it is in that that we can see our world in such a way that brings life instead of death. So my brothers of Toowoomba, may you never ever feel guilt and shame and fear one more second over lust. We all have moments where we see our world as objects instead of humans. That's part of the struggle. That's part of the wrestle. But may we never stay there. May we be empowered by the grace of Christ to never ever stay there, but always engage it by humanizing the other person. May we name them and watch life come to our world instead of death. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We proclaim your king. There's none like you. Lord, we bring our stuff to you knowing we're already accepted. And we say, you know what? The wheat and the weeds grow together. This is me. And um, thanks for accepting me. Lord, would you empower us in that acceptance to see our world in a way that brings life and not death? May we be able to name the person. Amen. Thank you so much for me to be a part of your morning. I can't wait to spend the whole weekend with you. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless. <laughs>